This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Influence is one of the most frequent and powerful reasons given by evangelical and reformed leaders to explain why they do what they do. Google the phrase, quote, make an impact for Christ, close quote, or influence for Christ, and you will find hundreds of articles, blogs, and columns. It seems almost impious to question the power of influence, but in a memorable 1998 essay in Modern Reformation magazine titled The Myth of Influence, Bob Godfrey did just that. And he's here with us today to talk about the myth of influence and its consequences as we look forward to our faculty conference, Christianity and Liberalism Revisited, this month, January 14th and 15th, here on the campus at Westminster Seminary, California. Learn more and register now for the conference at wscal.edu slash conference 2011. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Let's define our terms. When you speak of the myth of influence, what do you mean by influence? Well, this idea came to me years ago as I looked around at the evangelical world in America and kept hearing this word influence popping up again and again as a justification for various sorts of actions and positions taken by relatively prominent people. And um, it got me thinking, uh, what does it mean to be an influence, and is influence a good thing or a bad thing? Now, obviously, just taken by itself, influence is a good thing. If we can influence people to think more biblically, to live more biblically, we certainly want to take every opportunity to do that. But as I listened to the way in which that word was being used, it increasingly struck me that it was being used to justify what struck me often as unbiblical compromises, so that I will give up this element of biblical truth in order to be able to impress another element of biblical truth on people. In that sense, it almost sounded like a kind of Washington political game. I'll give up part of my political principles in order to get some legislation passed. There's probably virtue to that in Washington, but I'm not convinced it's in fact a virtuous procedure in the religious world. Are you against influence at all? You've already suggested no, but explain what sort of influence you think Christians can and should exercise, and and how do we accumulate that sort of influence? That's a great question, and obviously it's a complicated matter, and the answer to that depends to some extent on the circumstances. For example, I think the anti-abortion cause in America has been influential, and part of the way in which it's become influential is by forging alliances among people who differ theologically, so that Orthodox Jews, conservative Roman Catholics, evangelical Protestants, and others— are able to come together in spite of significant, very real and important religious differences, and yet cooperate on a common goal. And in that sense, they have compromised in a sense to be influential, but that has turned out to be a good thing, it seems to me. But there are other times when we have compromised theologically in order supposedly to be sometimes an evangelistic influence, sometimes a social moral influence in a way that I think has actually harmed the cause. And I think when we come to the essential truth of the gospel and the claims of Jesus Christ, when you look at the history of the church, it's the people who 
refused to compromise, who in fact were the greatest influence in the long run. And I think that's important to keep before the mind of the church. You use the word myth on the one hand, which suggests that something doesn't really exist, and yet you've given examples of at least attempts to obtain influence or real examples of influence. So what do you mean by the word myth? Well, what I mean by the word myth is that some people have claimed that their compromise is justifiable because of the influence that results from it in accomplishing certain goals. And the mythical part of that is that I think most of the time those goals are not actually accomplished. So you've had compromise of religious principle without any really positive fruit. In fact, maybe I could write a follow-up article on the boomerang of the myth of influence, because I think as often as not, it's really the person who's made the compromise that has been influenced rather than becoming a positive influence on others. Can you give some examples of where the quest for influence has boomeranged? Well, I would think the whole evangelicals and Catholics together effort is an excellent example of that. Certainly, we want to, as confessional Protestants, talk to our evangelical and Roman Catholic friends. We want to seek in every way possible to advance the cause of biblical understanding and the cause of biblical truth. But to sit down and come up with a statement on justification, which appears to create a unity which, in fact, has not been created, doesn't lead, I don't think, to a good result. It leads to a bad result. Uh, You and I, as students of the 16th century, can perhaps see this as another effort very similar to what happened at Regensburg, where for a moment it appeared that Philip Melanchthon and Martin Bucer had reached an agreement on justification with Roman Catholics. But on closer examination, Calvin and Luther saw this was just papering over differences and that nothing really good came out of that. And I think the same is true today. If Rome is able to walk away from ECT and say, look, There's no real difference on the essential doctrine of salvation between evangelicals and us. Then can't Rome say, why are evangelicals doing proselytizing work in Central and South America? Um, You've already granted that our doctrine of salvation is a biblical doctrine. So leave us alone. Leave our people alone. Go evangelize people who don't know the gospel at all. And I think Protestants have only weakened their own hand in those situations without really accomplishing much that's good. Since you wrote this article, there have been a lot of other episodes where Christians, evangelical Christians and some Reformed Christians, have sought influence, and some would argue, at the expense of principle. What do you make, for example, of the Manhattan Declaration? Well, I haven't followed the ins and outs of the Manhattan Declaration closely. I think the idea, as with the issue of abortion, of trying to create a united front on certain clear moral and social issues— can be a good thing. The problematics, as as I've heard people criticize the Manhattan Declaration, is that it seems to imply that these social issues are almost more important than theological issues, that theological issues can be safely ignored to pursue the really important thing, which is to make America more moral. Now, I'm as committed as anyone to trying to make America more moral But I think ultimately the way you do that is bearing a clear testimony to the gospel on the one hand and then getting in and doing the hard work of politics on the other hand. But 
I think this American tendency to try to forge all of these broad alliances in the end has the effect of trivializing and, and marginalizing the testimony of religious people. And I don't see any particular good fruit that's come from the Manhattan Project. One of the examples that comes to mind is you're describing people looking for influence, and then it's sort of boomeranging on them. It came to my mind was Princeton Seminary in the 1920s. Arguably, one of the motivations behind the reorganization of Princeton and the struggle between confessionalists and moderates and liberals before the split in the formation of Westminster Seminary in 1929 was this question of influence. Talk about the relationship of the desire for influence and what happened at Princeton. Well, Princeton, of course, was the first of the Presbyterian seminaries to be founded in 1812, and it had historically always been a center of old-school Presbyterianism. That is the more confessional, more a strictly biblical wing of the Presbyterian Church in America. And while many other Presbyterian seminaries had been founded, some old school and some new school, Princeton remained the premier seminary in terms of its academic prestige as well as its uh, confessional commitments. And Princeton remained then the center of opposition to the rising uh, modernism that was growing in the Presbyterian Church as well as in many other Protestant denominations in the late 19th and early 20th century. And B.B. Warfield was certainly the sort of prince of theologians and critics of the newer approach to theology that was becoming so widespread. And that created tensions in the Presbyterian Church between the more conservative, later to be labeled fundamentalist faction of the church, and the liberal or modernist faction of the church. And There were voices, of course, in the Presbyterian Church that became increasingly resentful that Princeton didn't speak for the whole denomination, as they would put it, but only for a faction or a point of view in the denomination. And yet that's exactly what Princeton had always done and what the defenders of Princeton insisted that it ought to continue to do. Dr. Machen became, in the um, mid to later 1920s, the strongest voice at Princeton against the new theology, especially after Dr. Warfield died. And so the antagonism towards Princeton began to focus on Dr. Machen. And despite the recommendation that Dr. Machen be made professor of apologetics uh, coming from the faculty, uh, the General Assembly in 1926 refused to do that because of this growing antagonism towards Dr. Machen. And the General Assembly then appointed a commission to study the problems at Princeton and concluded the problems were in part the result of uh, having two boards of trustees at Princeton. This had a long history in Presbyterianism. The board of trustees proper had responsibility for the property and the finances, and the board of directors, as it was known, had responsibility for the educational life of Princeton. The board of directors were entirely on Machen's side. The board of trustees tended to be more open to broadening the seminary. And so the General Assembly, in what seemed to be a very reasonable action, said, well, let's try to end this opposition between these two boards by creating one board. We'll take one-third of the new board from the old board of directors. We'll take one-third of the new board from the old board of trustees, and we'll appoint one-third of new people. And that on the surface, seemed a not unreasonable thing to do. But what Dr. Machen saw happening was that of those one-third of new 
members of the new board of trustees, uh, two or three of them had been signers of the Auburn Affirmation, which at the best can be described as protecting the modernists in the church. And he felt this was clearly destroying the whole character of Princeton by broadening it. Now, again, there were doubtless people at the time who said, well, this will make Princeton more influential because it'll be broader, it'll speak to more sections of the church, it'll be able to speak to the broader world more effectively, it'll unite Princeton in some way, so it'll be more influential. And I think um, this is clearly mythological as an argument. Princeton, I do not think, became more influential after the departure of Dr. Machen, either in the Presbyterian Church or in the world, but in fact became less influential because it was more like everybody else and spoke less clearly with a distinctive voice. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark, and we're talking with the president of Westminster Seminary, California, Bob Godfrey, about the myth of influence and whether Christians should be seeking influence, and if so, what sort. When we come back, I have a question for him about the nature of influence in the New Testament and an example of someone who might be considered a failure in the quest for influence and someone who some might consider successful in the quest for influence. And we'll get to that right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Bob, one of the most surprising things about the whole matter of influence and Christians being influential is that there's very little evidence in the New Testament that the apostolic church was particularly influential in the first century culture and society. There is language about turning the world upside down, but the point of that is hyperbole as much as anything else. It's not meant to be taken as a literal statement of the state of things. So this leads to two questions. First, do you agree with, and I understand this will be a little controversial, that one of the prime examples of someone trading principle for the sake of influence might be Judas, and one of the great failures in the quest for influence in the New Testament is Jesus, who was repeatedly given opportunities to be successful and influential the way people often describe it, but who turned his back on those at every opportunity. I think that's true. I think we probably don't know as much about Judas and his motivations as many different artists and playwrights have contended that we do. But what is clear is that Judas failed to be a man of principle and was willing to compromise in a vile way to sell his Lord for the price of a slave. We could also think about Simon Magus as a good example of someone who wanted to be influential and was willing to buy the Holy Spirit to be influential. And we can contrast that so markedly with Jesus. And the the great example of that that always comes to my mind is what's recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 6, where Jesus, because he fed the crowds with bread, had 5,000 people at least following him. And uh, what an opportunity to be a an influence. They wanted to take him and make him king. They regarded him as prophet. Here's a large group of people that you could influence, that you could work with, that you could 
disciple and change and make a big impact. And that was not the approach that Jesus took to this situation. He realized that these people were not following him out of genuine faith, but were following him for what they could get out of it. And that's not the kind of disciples Jesus wanted. And so in a remarkable way, by stressing first grace alone and then faith alone and Jesus alone in a remarkable series of teachings there in John chapter 6, Jesus manages to whittle that crowd down from 5,000 to just the 12 and then reminds them that even one of the 12 will betray him. And so one might say, you know, Jesus lost this wonderful opportunity to be influential. And what John 6 teaches us is not that Jesus thinks small is always better than big, but what Jesus teaches us there is true discipleship is what he's after. And he'd rather have 11 true disciples than 5,000 false disciples. And I think that is a perfect example of how principle— now, to be sure, we fallible human beings can claim principles where we shouldn't, but the truth is that principle is what will be the real influence for good and for the gospel when we pursue it. Isn't influence really paradoxical or the path to influence paradoxical? Jesus says, unless I go away from you, I can't pour out my spirit. The way of influence in the New Testament is the way of self-denial and death through humiliation on a cross. Well, almost every place you touch the New Testament, you find these things. Think of Paul and Peter. I mean, how much easier it would have been for Paul just to say, well, Peter has his way of doing things, I have my way of doing things, and we'll just live and let live, and that way we can all be more influential. But Paul saw the gospel at stake at Peter's Judaizing uh, ways, and he called him on it. And it wasn't comfortable, but it was much more important. And you go right through church history and you see this. Uh, Athanasius standing up for the eternal divinity of Christ. And what did they say of Athanasius? There stands Athanasius contra mundum, against the world. The whole world's against him. Athanasius could easily have compromised to make his life easier, to find some papered-over language. And there was a lot of it around. There was a lot of it around, absolutely. Uh, Why can't we say instead of that the Father and the Son are of the same substance, why can't we just say they're of a similar substance, of a like substance? The Arians were willing to go along with that, many of them at least. He could have been an influence. But, you know, Paul had the real influence by staying faithful to the gospel. Athanasius had the real influence in the life of the church by upholding the eternal divinity of Christ. Luther, it's hard to think of many people less compromising than Martin Luther. We as Reformed people might have liked him to be slightly more amenable to compromise at certain points in his career. But Luther always sensed that what would be influential is being faithful to Christ and his word, not compromising that. I can imagine a listener thinking to himself or herself, well, you're part of a smaller institution and you're criticizing larger entities. Aren't you just a little bit jealous and aren't you making excuses? After all, every time I go to a Reformed gathering, I'm as likely as not to hear someone talking about not despising a day of small things. Defend yourself, Godfrey. No, I think you're right. You've caught me out. (laughs) To be sure, we Reformed people are too often defensive we're often stupid, and we sometimes say things that we shouldn't say, uh, present company accepted. And uh, some of this criticism certainly is valid. We would like to be bigger than we are. We'd like to be more influential than we are. 
But I do believe that we have learned from the Scriptures at our best. Let me say that again. At our best, we have learned from the Scriptures and from the history of the Church that it's not by compromise of basic principles that the work of Christ gets done and gets advanced. It's by people who are are faithful. And we often don't see the fruit of that. You mentioned the, the struggles of the early church. I often think of John, a prisoner on Patmos, although he was the beloved disciple, writing to seven small persecuted churches in Asia Minor, and telling them that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's also improbable. It would have been a lot easier on all of them if they had said, while Jesus in our hearts is King of kings and Lord of lords, we can go along with the notion that Caesar is King of kings and Lord of lords um, for most of life. And what's a pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar? We could be so influential if we do that and then go out and preach the gospel and give a testimony to a moral life, and uh, we all know that pagan gods are nothing, so how incense offered to them can't be anything, and we can be an influence. I mean, it, it all makes a lot of sense, but the impact of John was so much more profound because he remained faithful and didn't embrace the myth of influence. In the early second century, Pliny the Younger was sent to investigate complaints about a small band of Christians in Asia Minor. And he found that most of the complaints, or all of them, were really unfounded. But nevertheless, he did find these Christians to be somewhat uh, recalcitrant, stubborn, reluctant, and he really only asked them to do a couple of things, one thing really, and that was to say that Caesar is Lord and uh, perhaps to renounce Christ. I can easily imagine someone saying, as you already suggested, well, if I just say Caesar is Lord, then I can go on to do all number of good things. Or if when I'm asked, are you a Christian, which was really the fatal question, all you had to say was, I am a Christian, and, and you would be liable to, if you were a Roman citizen, to be sent to Rome for trial, or if you were not a citizen, to be put to death pretty swiftly. And so there's tremendous temptation to simply say, and everyone knows it's a lie, it's, this is all pro forma. Well, no, I'm not a Christian. Describe that scene a, a little more, if you can. Well, the Romans were eminently reasonable. They were relatively tolerant imperial overlords, and all they expected of the peoples that they had conquered or taken under their wing was that these people be loyal citizens of the empire. And from a Roman point of view, being a citizen uh, was tied in intimately to a recognition of the Roman gods, because Rome saw its whole empire resting on the foundation of the mores established by the Roman gods. And so the classic Roman complaint against the Christians was that they were atheists and traitors, which strikes us as very curious accusations, but from a Roman point of view, it makes perfect sense. The Christians are atheists because they deny the Roman gods, and they're traitors because having denied the Roman gods, they can't be reliably citizens of the empire. And so all Rome asked was not that they reject Jesus. Rome was perfectly glad to for you to have any of your private devotions to any strange god that came along, as long as you prove that you weren't an atheist and weren't a traitor by acknowledging in some, as you say, very formal way, the Roman gods. And the Christians following on 
really the monotheistic tradition of the Jews that they had inherited, refused to make that sort of compromise. And as a result, uh, the Romans were very willing to put the Christians to death simply for that, from Roman point of view, obstinacy. And that's what they said, refusal to conform, really. Exactly. What can we learn as we come up later this month to the annual faculty conference? And this year we're focusing on Christianity and liberalism revisited, and we're looking at looking backwards at Machen's life and then looking forward a bit to what we can learn from Machen's example as we go on. What can we learn from Machen relative to the myth of influence? Well, what I think we can learn is that the great calling of Christians is to stand for the gospel and for the truth of the scriptures. And if we can accomplish other things in life, that's great. But we don't dare seek to accomplish other things at the compromise of this core of our existence. And that's what Dr. Machen's life testified to so brilliantly. Uh, Dr. Machen was established as one of the premier New Testament scholars of his day at the premier conservative Protestant seminary of his day. And he could have lived on his life in that environment of wealth, privilege, and influence uh, very easily for the rest of his life. But instead, he wanted to battle for Christ and for the Bible and for the church because he saw it as absolutely central and critical. And some people have said, well, he made a real mistake, didn't he? Uh, The Orthodox Presbyterian Church that he helped found uh, has remained small and not very influential. And yet, I think we can say in the Presbyterian world, where else do you find such a clear testimony to confessional Reformed Christianity, to biblical truth? And no, it hasn't had all the numbers that Dr. Machen would have liked and many others would have liked, but it has remained a light shining for the truth. And that's what we want to try to focus on and celebrate at this faculty conference. Again, we want to be sensitive to the fact that sometimes people in our tradition have stood on principles that aren't really principles. And sometimes we've just been difficult and grumpy and difficult to get along with. That's not what we're celebrating. But we want to be renewed in a church environment in America where pragmatism seems triumphant in many ways. We want to be renewed in the call of the Bible to being a principled people. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.